You are listening to History Man, the platform for curators, authors, and historians to tell their stories of the American Revolution, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. We continue now with our episodes with retired Lieutenant Colonel of the U.S. Air Force, Richard Allen Morris, who is the Vice President of the Piedmont Region, Sons of the American Revolution, and a volunteer at the 96th Historic Site. We still have Anderson, Pickens, Still Cherokee. All that's still Cherokee territory. South Carolina. All that's still Cherokee. All that's Cherokee territory. Correct. Highway 11, which is the Cherokee Trail. All of that is all Cherokee. Correct. That's still Cherokee. Interesting. Still Cherokee. But in uh, 1767, by 1767, all these immigrants that have been flooding in, you also get this little uh, unsavory group that comes with them. Guys that don't want to work. Guys that don't looking for land, they're looking for stealing stuff from other people. So the movement that arises up out of that is called the Regulators. Which is a very important time period, but it also highlighted the uh, the necessity of the government in Charleston to actually put some government uh, offices and infrastructure in the backcountry. That is correct, because the biggest complaint that people had, of course, was there's no law enforcement up here. Yeah, we got little local militia groups, but... They're only activated by the governor. Right. And because of the Indian threat, most of those guys have gone home, back to their homes, and, and were taking care of their families and stuff. So when the regulators took it upon themselves to basically enforce uh, what was right, what was wrong. Now, the problem is, of course, what I think is right and what he thinks is right may not be the same thing. And the other problem was the regulator became the sheriff, the jury, the judge, and in a lot of cases, the hangman. Justice was swift, unlike today. They took care of things. There's a record that uh, cattle and women were stolen from the 96 area, and the men who had stolen those items had fled all the way to Virginia, and the regulars went all the way to Virginia and got that stuff back and killed those guys. And the regulator movement in South Carolina is different than the regulator movement in North Carolina. Absolutely. Yeah, and the regulators in North Carolina were actually had thought about, and if you read, read the history of the regulators, they were thinking about creating a separate colony okay. devoid from the government entities. Of course, back then, the, the colonies, most of the government entities on the coast, uh, the backcountry, uh, area once in a while they show up and collect some taxes or whatever, but they're really not providing anything. They're not providing schools, they're not providing churches, they're not providing roads, they're not providing, you know, you're kind of on your own until the government wants something. If they want you to be part of the militia, they come looking for you. If they want you, to, they need some money, they come looking for you. And so eh, you can see how this is kind of festering here. And so North Carolina regulators was, was to the point where they were actually looking to establish their own colony away from North Carolina. Whereas the South Carolina was saying, we're just taking care of business. We still want to be a part of South Carolina, but you all aren't helping us much. That's right. That's right. And so it's, we're taking care of business. It is an interesting time in, in South Carolina when you think about it and, and start delving into it. And the repercussions and decisions made in that regulator movement uh, play into the Revolutionary War. Absolutely. From the standpoint of, that family feuds, feuds arouse from this because the guy that was in charge with the regulators would take somebody's family member and try him and kill him. I mean, put him to death, hang him or whatever. 
And let me tell you what, that blood feud thing. That was real. That was real. Yeah. I mean, we, we think modern terms, Hatfield McCoys. Guess what? That, that was going on up here in the upcountry, especially during that time period. Um, the legislature did finally react. 1769, they, they create judicial districts. Judicial districts. Uh, they're going to put a jail and a courthouse in each of the districts. 96 was selected as the site for, for the 96th district. And so there's going to be a courthouse built. There's going to be uh, uh, justice brought to the brought to the area. Um, of course, just like any other government project, three years later, 1772, <laughs> they build the courthouse, they build the jail, but the jail is really good. They take advantage of the red clay, make their own bricks, build a three-story brick jailhouse. The bottom story is the jailers. The second story is the jail. The third story is used for storage. Now, the third, the that was built uh, between uh, uh, in 1772. The circuit judge would show up in April and November. So if you got arrested in May, you had to wait till November before the judge came back. That's crazy. So twice a year, that circuit judge would come ride through 96 and would listen to all the complaints and stuff. By then, though, they built the jail at the intersection north of Gowdy's trading post. Why? Because that's where all the roads kind of came together. How many roads were there? There were up to six roads, they said, that actually came into the area north of Gowdy's. Uh, there's three of them that you can see when you when you walk the park. The other ones have all been kind of hidden by time. And So we talked a little bit, of, you know, before about um, how long it took to get from 96 down to Charleston. And that became a, a huge issue prior, you know, in, in we're talking about the regulator movement now. What were the roads that came out of here and how close were the next settlements from here? Okay. 96, uh, basically the main road, three main roads that they had running out of it, one went to what they called the Island Ford Road. The Island Ford Road would cross the rivers heading east towards Camden. Okay, so you're talking about Saluda, the Broad, the Watery. Correct, correct. Okay. And so uh, when you came to 96 from the Camden area, which that was another district, uh, headquarters and then the other road that came out of 96 was called the Augusta Road. Now it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to figure out okay <laughs> must go to Augusta. Well it actually was called the Williamson Road. There was a plantation out to the west called Williamson. That's where he had his plantation. When you say plantation what are you talking about? I'm talking about a log cabin. A lot of people you have that you know the white columns and the big and all no We're no not no. not talking antebellum here. Not antebellum here. Farm. Farm. That is exactly right. These, these people called their land holdings plantations. That was just the term that they used. Farm is what we use nowadays, but they called them plantations back in the 1700s. And it was just land with a house on it, basically, or a couple outbuildings. Not necessarily a good house, either. Not necessarily. So going out to the west, they had this road leaving from 96. If you turn left, you went to Augusta. If you turn right, you went to Oconing, which was the Indian village up by Clemson, where Clemson is now. How long did it take to get to Camden? Get to Camden was about a, a two, two and a half days. Oconee. Oconee was uh, almost almost seven days to get up there. Okay. Yeah, right. a little bit longer. And then, uh, Augusta, and then Augusta. Augusta was about a three-day trip as well. Wow, okay. About, right. And you'll, you'll see how some of, the, some of these things, if you're really in a hurry, you can make it in two. If you don't have a lot of baggage and stuff like that, the guys who are just riding horses and stuff could probably make it in two days. But it's still, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a distance. 
Now, in between there, you have little settlements. Okay. But these were the major towns. These were where the forts were at. These are, these are the ones where if uh, trouble came, that's usually where you would gather, at these three different towns up in the upstate at that time, the different districts. Um, the Whitehall, they also called it the Whitehall Road. They also called it that, that same one, Williamson's Road, Whitehall Road, Augusta Road, Hard Labor Road. There's a, a creek called Hard Labor Creek. Well, so was it called Hard Labor Creek back then? Yes. Really? Yes. I've always thought, well, that's just because named after some uh, road crew from the prison or something. But you know, we're talking back to the Revolutionary War time. Before the Revolutionary War time because it was hard labor to get the farm going. <laughs> Chop down all these trees, build a house, you know, clear the land. It was just, they considered it hard labor, and they'd already named that road hard labor. So when you go up to Orange County, Virginia, one of the areas that uh, the settlers were coming to, and then some of them came down from Orange County, Virginia, and came down into the Carolinas. But you go back to some of their original colonial records, and they had highway maintenance records where the people in the community, they were given the responsibility of maintaining a road between this place and this place. Uh, do we have any type of records like that here? I, I haven't seen any records about maintenance of the roads. I can tell you that my grandfather uh, was one of these road guys in West Virginia, and he had a section of road, and they said you could, you could get to his house because that's where it ended. <laughs> so he, he maintained it from the main road to his house. The road was good. Everybody else's, not so good. Wow. Tell us about 1774 here at 96. 1774, you got to look at overall the history that's going on in uh, South Carolina. They attend the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. In December, they decide to hold elections. Elections, elects their own government. Uh, the governor, key point, the British governor had left. The new governor had not shown up yet. So there's no British presence in South Carolina at that time. So technically from an English standpoint, they had vacated their, their authorities. Transition. They like to call it transition. Yeah. They had a guy come and identify, but the other guy got sick or something, had to go home early. You know, it's one of those type deals. So the lieutenant governor is supposedly over the colonial, I mean, over the, the kingdom, so to speak. But really, the legislators got together, banded together, and actually formed a separate government in Correct. South Carolina. Correct. So you had two governments operating and in they, South Carolina. They called it a provincial congress. I see. Okay. Provincial congress. It was elected in December. Uh, South Carolina, in January, they met and basically said, okay, these are some of the things we're going to do. These are some of the things we have to do. And then, of course, uh, during the spring, they're getting feedback from the British, and they're not sure. Things are starting to heat up. Troops are starting to show up up north. Um, writing's on the wall. Right. There's going to be a conflict, they, they feel. And uh, what happens in July is, they notify the militia up in the 96th district that you need to go secure the supplies that is at a fort called Fort Charlotte on the Savannah River. That fort had been built on the Savannah River and, and supplied to uh, uh, fight the Indians. Okay. That's why it was there. Not 
as a threat to, I mean, it had been, been there for a while. It wasn't something new. So they contacted the people up in, up in this area. Uh, the force that went to get the supplies was When you a, say they, who is they? That's the Congress. That's the Provincial Congress, and South Carolina the, Provincial the Council Congress. Council of Safety coming out of Council that? Council of Safety coming out of that. Okay. Uh, just like the other colonies, they've created the, a, a similar organization. Uh, they contact the gentleman who was leading the militia at this time was a guy by the name Major Mason, James Mason. He is buried at uh, 96 Historic Site. They moved him because when they built the dam, they flooded his farm where he was buried, and uh, and they actually moved his him and his wife both to the historic site, and they're buried out on the site. Let's go down a little rabbit hole right here, okay. because I think it actually plays into some of the dynamics in the in the backcountry. Mason was elected as leader or appointed, maybe I should say appointed as leader of the militia at 96, but it was actually between him and someone else. Correct. And that someone else plays a pivotal role in the British uh, workings going on around 96 as well. Correct. Who was that? Cunningham? Robert Cunningham? Cunningham was one of them, but there was another gentleman who actually went in, uh, to Fort Charlotte and as soon as I see his name, Joseph Robinson. Okay. Major Joseph Robinson had gone to Charlotte with Mason when he got the supplies. When he brought the supplies back to 96. Why? Because 96 had the brick building. Right. <laughs> that was considered. There's no fort. There's no fort there at this time. There's a town with a courtroom and a jail, which occupies uh, basically where all the roads come together. Okay. There's about 12 houses, the courthouse, and the jail. This guy by the name of Robinson, Major Robinson, and Mason go get the supplies from Charlotte, bring them to 96. And they have a contingent of soldiers with them. Oh, it's absolutely. Not, it's not just those two going no, on no, no. a little ride. No, no, no. They, they take the whole militia contingent Correct. in there to Fort Charlotte. Right, but there's no battle. When they show up at Fort Charlotte, most of the people, most of the militia who are manning that fort, there's only like a half a dozen people that are there at the fort. Okay. Well... These guys all know each other. They all fought Indians and, you know, everything else together. So how dedicated are they to defend that fort? Eh, probably not so much. But um, the rest of them are, are home because there's nothing going on. Right. The, the Indians aren't uprising. I mean, there's nothing going on. So the, those guys are kind of like caretakers for the fort. And it was a pretty bad disrepair from what I could read, the history. Uh, they hadn't really taking care of it. It's so even worse than a light station or a lighthouse on Correct. the coast, right? So I mean, Correct. these guys are just like, yeah. oh, whatever. Yeah, you've got a cannon, we got some gun, okay, yeah, okay. You know, nobody checked on them, there was nothing going on. So them guys showed up and said, hey, we'd like to take that. They said, okay. <laughs> so there really wasn't a battle, so to speak. Okay. Uh, and, but they took the stuff, they took the 96. Um, Joseph Robinson then decides that, you know, I think I like the king better. This is in the middle of this this mission for them to come go to Fort Charlotte, grab these things, and bring them back to 96. In the middle of this mission, he changes his loyalties. Correct. This, this, this was, you need to take your militia and go. And they'd kind of been geared towards that because of the Indian raids and all the other stuff that they'd done in the past. That's the way it happened. You know, they'd call up and say, okay, we got this going on. You need to go over here. You need to go over there. And so for him to grab his gun. I mean, it's just like another militia call. Okay. Right. So he picks up his gun and goes. But then when he sees what's going on, we're taking the king's stuff now. The king's stuff. And we're bringing it and we're going to use it. Hmm. Let me think about that. 
that's not right. I like the king. I'm not doing this anymore. Okay. And so he basically swaps sides. But we'll see him again. That happens in, uh, in July. Um, there's also a guy by the name of two guys, Robert and Patrick Cunningham, captains, who are also part of that group. Okay. Part of that militia group up in the upcountry that go and seize this thing. What they said was there's about 500 pounds of lead, 250 pounds of gunpowder. Right. Is what they brought back to 96. Uh, meanwhile, the Provincial Congress from Charlestown sends a gentleman by the name of William Drayton. William Drayton. And he's accompanied by a pastor by the name of William Tennant. Those two gentlemen show up in the upcountry to try to get everybody to sign that they, if war comes, that they'll either, either remain neutral or that they'll join the, what later became the Patriot cause. Okay. And so they're going around to all the communities up here in the upcountry now, trying to get people signed up ahead of time in case trouble comes. Well, it's interesting. I read something, uh, uh, Buchanan's book on this, on this particular thing, and he was talking about they brought Tennant. Is that who it was? Correct. Brought Tennant up because he was a pastor. He was a pastor. He was a Protestant pastor, probably, I think, Baptist, and because they felt like he would be able to communicate better with these people than the rice planter, uh, Justice Henry Drayton, who was part of the elite. Correct. Low country. Uh, uh, upper echelon. Yeah, he was already a he was already a judge. I mean, he was the legal guy. Right. Right. Whereas the other guy was a religious guy. So you're combining right. religion and. It didn't go over well with the Cunninghams. Though, Ooh, <laughs> no, 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 no. They they talk about the guys on the other side of the Saluda River. Primarily, those guys were loyalists. And uh, they had a, a guy by the name of uh, Fletcher, Colonel Thomas Fletcher. He was their leader. He fought with the militia. Everybody had fought with the militia. Right. I mean, this, this everybody said. It, it was part of your, yeah. the, the process of being part of the community. Correct. And he'd become a colonel in the militia. And he'd fought, fought with them, fought the Indians, done all that stuff. But he was still loyal to the king. And a lot of people don't understand, how could they stay loyal to the king with all the stuff that was going on? Well, what you have to realize is everything that was happening up in Boston, New York, Charleston, all the major cities along the East Coast, none of that was happening in the upcountry. They'd say, what about the tax on sugar? they go, sugar? We, we don't eat sugar. I said, what about the tax on paper? I can't read. I'm not paying tax on paper. Well, what about quartering troops? There's no troops up here. I'm not, I, nobody's staying in my house. You know, so all those grievances that are starting to surface throughout the colonies on the coast primarily, the upcountry guys are going, I have no idea what you're talking about. And on top of that, when I was having trouble overseas, the Huguenots in France, uh, Irish, Scotch, Scotch-Irish, the Scots, the British came to them and said, we'll make you a British citizen, we'll give you a boat ticket to the new country, and we're going to give you 172 acres of land. Europe, you can't own land. You couldn't. It was all belonged by the, by the aristocracy. Yeah, from their mindset, they were becoming lords oh, and ladies. Oh, man. Of, right? So yeah. They, they were, it's a bounty. Bounty. Yeah. I mean, we're rich. And so they gave them this land. They brought them here. They gave them the land, uh, gave them supplies, you know, to start the farming and that kind of stuff. And then when they had Indian trouble in the, in the 60s, who showed up? The king and his army. Right. You know, the troops showed up, fought the Indians, beat them. 
peace. It's been peace up here. So why are we fighting the king? That's right. That's right. You know, they didn't have the same mindset as some of the Scots-Irish who had been forced out of Northern Ireland, some of the Scots settlers who had lived under the British rule right. and fled to the United States, right. and then just Englishmen. Uh, what a lot of people don't understand, the United States and Australia, one of the things they have in common, they're both penal colonies. Great Britain had trouble with people. Instead of just keep filling the jails up, they put them on a boat and send them here. Right. Especially Georgia. Georgia was set, set aside as a penal colony, right? Oglethorpe was was one of the, you know, overlords of that particular colony or whatever. But that, much like Australia, Australia was a yeah. penal, huge penal huge, island. Huge, <laughs> penal island. And, and that's why, you know, the, to say these guys were patriots, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know, they didn't like the British at all. So anyway, they tried to get people to sign papers. Uh, Drayton realizes that this isn't going nah, not going to work. So what's he do? He fortifies 96, the town of 96. He puts up a stockade fort around it, the jail and everything, a huge stockade fort. He starts bringing in supplies for the patriots. They're not called patriots then, of course. He had Tories and Whigs. And he starts bringing in supplies and, and basically uh, getting ready for the war that he can see is going to happen. Because in his correspondence back, it, that's worth a read by itself. If you read Drayden's correspondence back to the Provincial Congress down in, in Charlestown, he has no hope that this is that these people are going to be uh, subjugated and uh, and just kind of sit on the sidelines. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So, and, and that's inter that's a, a good point. But he does get a treaty signed, with and a lot of with Fletcher. With Fletcher. Not with the other two. Oh no no no! They refuse to sign. The right. Cunninghams refuse to sign. Williams Robinson refuses to sign. A lot of the guys refuse to sign. Now, when you look into when the treaty was signed, it was actually signed at ninety six. Drayton uh, brought in Colonel uh, Thomas Fletcher from the uh, Loyalist group, and they signed a treaty basically saying, hey, we're just going to kind of stay neutral and see what, what's going to happen type thing. And uh, the Cunninghams accused Fletcher of being drunk. <laughs> he, he showed up, and they started giving him alcohol. And they said by the time they got to the treaty part, he didn't know what he was signing. And so, so he signed it. We're, ah, nah, no, we're not going to do this. And so they basically... Walked, walked away and said, that's not going to happen. Now, in October, the Provincial Congress, trying to keep the Cherokee out of the war, had contacted the Cherokee and said, tell you what, the British usually supply you with lead and gunpowder for the winter hunting season so you guys can survive the winter. We will do that. We're such nice guys, we're going to do that. So they're sending a wagon load of supplies to the Cherokee on this side of the mountain, of course, up to Oconee to basically allow them to, to go hunting supplies. Well, Cunninghams hear about this wagon coming, and of course they spread the rumor that that the uh, Congress is arming the Indians to fight against the Loyalists. And so they get a group together that goes and intercepts this wagon about seven miles south of 96. And they take the lead and the gunpowder, of course, and they go back to their homes. Well, that gets back down to the south, and they say, okay, uh, had about a thousand pounds, about a thousand pounds of uh, gunpowder, about two thousand pounds of lead, but it doesn't stop there, of course. No. In November, uh, they they come and take the gunpowder and lead that's in '96, and they basically arrest arrest 
Major Mason, who's in charge of the militia force there, and put him in jail, in the jail at 96. And then once they're gone, of course, they let him out. Well, when the Congress finds out about it, they said, you all need to go get that stuff back. This is the stuff that was going to a county. Correct. Okay. All that stuff. The stuff they'd stolen from Charlotte, the stuff they kept. It all happens all about the same time. See, okay. there's a lot right. going on. So they're saying, you need to go get that stuff back. So the militia forms up at 96. And the, and the guy leading the militia at 96, because Mason now is somewhere else, is a guy by the name of Andrew Williamson. Okay. Who has a, has a plantation, farm, just west of 96. So he puts together a militia force. And he's, he gets about... 500 guys, five to 600 militia guys respond to the call and they're going to go across the river to, to around where Salute is at to basically get this stuff back. Well, Thomas Fletcher and the loyalists hear about this and so they put an army together too, except their army is about 12 to 1,500 guys. So Williamson, when he hears about this, he says, this is not good. What year is this? This is seventeen. This is seventeen seventy-five. Okay. November seventeen seventy-five. Okay. And so, he says we're going to stay here at ninety-six until we get more people. Now he's joined by a couple of other folks, a guy by the name of Pickens. Andrew Pickens shows up with his little militia guys, but it's still not enough. He doesn't think there's enough there. And then he hears that the loyalists are coming across the river and they're going to meet him. They're not going to wait on him. They're coming to meet him. And so what they do is they evacuate the town, the little militia force that he has, evacuates the town across the creek, uh, spring, to a farm, which is just west of the town of 96. Okay. And he makes a fortification out of that town because the loyalists now are about two hours away. Now you're thinking, okay, so how do you build a fortification in two hours, mm -hmm. back into 1750? Right. He took his fence apart. The guy that had to farm, split rail fence, you take the fence apart, stick the rails between the buildings and the farm and the outbuildings, and that becomes your fort. And they named it Fort Williamson. All in two hours. Oh, in about two hours. Wow. <laughs> now, they also had a herd of cattle. They brought, you know, sacks of flour and stuff. And so they got about five, 600 guys in this little fort <laughs> with the cows and everybody else. Wow. Wait, waiting for the... the uh, Loyalists to come across, and they do, and the loyalists do show up. And of course, who's at the leading? leading? Major Robinson, remember the gentleman from Fort okay. Charlotte in the first encounter? Patrick Cunningham. Okay. Those are the leaders, and those guys show up, and they start talking. The first thing is they're talking. Now, one thing that that the Patriot Force did have was they retained three swivel guns, and so they had mounted these swivel guns in the corners of their fort to also help. Even the odds. So when you go to 96, that that fortification is not going to be there, is it? It is. It is there. Because that fortification that's currently at 96 today, it's the same spot where they built a fortification in 1781. Okay. Same farm. Very good. The right. buildings are the, are the same buildings that are outlined there with the same buildings that were there, maybe a couple extra. You can technically see, I mean, if that's the same one, you can you can actually see how they how they did that. And the, the buildings are close enough together that you can actually put those those timbers in between there and, and create a palisade, so to speak. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And, then, and of course, they were using whatever else was available, sure. the farm, wagon, wheel, um, whatever, right. to help build this fort. So they build this thing up. At the same time, <laughs> remember, remember uh, Drayton? He's returned to Charlestown, and he's told them it's going to be trouble. 
Charlestown contacts a militia force at Camden, a gentleman by the name of Richard Richardson. Colonel Richard Richardson puts together a militia force at Camden, and these guys come even from North Carolina. Is that right? A patriot militia force of over 2,000 guys, and they're building this force up basically to take care of the loyalists in Saluda at the same time that this battle is, is, is about to occur. The first land battle in, in, in the South occurred at 96 between neighbors. All right, so you got a, a contingent, let's call them Patriot and Tory. You got Patriot, Patriots inside of Williamson Fort. Surrounding them is a Tory. 2,000 Tories. 2,000 Tories. And then you got another Patriot force coming. From Camden, but they don't know about yet. Okay. Well, we think they don't know. Okay. There's a force forming in Camden at okay. the same time. Fair enough. These guys shoot at each other for three days. The reason it started was, and depending on which account you read, there's a couple guys going down to the spring. The spring goes between where this fort's at and the town. Okay. That's the only water in the area. So they're going down to get water, and the Tories grab them. Well, of course, they said, eh, eh, wait a minute. We're talking here. Give them back. They said, no. Well, then somebody fires off a shot. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. Right. Because then everybody's shooting. Right. Everybody's shooting. One guy killed on each side. Okay. Three days. Now, think about this. These guys are backcountry guys. Most of them have rifles, not muskets. We're not talking muskets here. We're talking rifles. Accurate up to 300 yards. One guy's killed on each side. Do you think they're really trying? No. They're just trying to get it, make their point, right? They even erected a mandalit. A what? A mandalit. Okay. Basically what that is, it's a wall, a wooden wall on wheels, and they were pushing this thing towards the fort, hiding behind it so they couldn't, wouldn't get shot. At the same time, they set fire to the grass. And as the fire started moving towards the fort, they were going to try to burn them out. Bad news, the wind shifted. The wind shifted, the, fa the fire caught the mandolin on fire that these guys are hiding behind. And of course, that didn't work. So, I mean, some things in history, you just you have to laugh because it's just funny how things, right. how things happen. Right. Right. Meanwhile, uh, they finally get to the third day. They're putting together forces. They're, they're going to go hand-to-hand -hand now because gunpowder's a little short. After three days of shooting at each other, gunpowder's a little short. So they're going to put together this force, and they're going to attack out of the fort, Williamson's fort, and just try to escape, basically. They're not going to try to kill all these guys. They're just trying to get away. Meanwhile, they get a white flag from the jail, that three-story building across the way, across right. the creek there. Right. They see a white flag. So they go walk out and talk, and they say, we need to talk about this. You know, this, this is crazy. We just need to talk about it. So we'll meet you for breakfast tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And so they did. In the town, they went over to the town. They had breakfast together. They hashed out this treaty. And I, I could read you the treaty if you'd like to sure. like to know what was on it. Yeah. This is what the treaty entailed. We're going to end hostilities. We're going to forward it to a higher authority. Now, the higher authority for the patriots is the Congress. The high authority for the loyalists is the governor who's sitting in a boat off the coast of South Carolina because right. they won't let him in the country. Right. won't let him in the colony. This is going to last for 20 days. 20 days peace. 
The Tories are going back to Saluda. The Whigs are going to destroy the fortification, Williamson's Fort. Big job, right? What he meant was build the fence back, <laughs> put the farm like it was before we start shooting at each other. Prisoners, which they had two prisoners, so we're going to exchange the prisoners. You get your prisoners, your guys back. And then we want you to surrender, surrender those three swivel guns, the Patriots, to surrender the swivel guns to them. Of course, that's a, that's a deal breaker. Mm-hmm. The Patriots go, no way, you don't get the guns. And the guy goes, the guy goes, well, come here. Come here. The leaders all go off in a corner in the town there. You give me the swivel guns and I'll give them back. And so they did. That was the agreement. They gave them the swivel guns in the morning. They kept them for a couple hours. The guys walk out holding the swivel guns. All the loyalists go, we won. They leave for home. Right. They're done. The war's over. We're going home, back to our farms. And then once everybody's gone, the leaders of the loyalists go, here, you can have them back, and hand them back to the patriots. Isn't that Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Like I said, there is a monument down at 96 for the first patriot killed in the South. And that's a guy by the name of William or James Birmingham. Wow. The patriots had, or they think, about 12 wounded. The loyalists had anywhere from 12 to 50 wounded. They're not, <laughs> they're not sure because the guy gets shot and he just leaves. You know, and they weren't sure who was just leaving and who got shot. So they're not sure exactly what the numbers were, but one killed on each side. The loyalist that was killed was Captain Looper, who actually lost his life at 96. So. That's fascinating. 